and welcome to The Hoon on the Kaka. I'm Bernard Hickey and we're with Peter Bale. Peter, how's it going? Bernard, it's very good to see you. You're looking extremely stylish down there in Wellington. I assume it's slightly cold. Your bedroom's looking really good. Yeah, no, we made the bed today for, yeah. the, for the bedroom. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it's bloody cold uh, because we've got the southerly going through. It's, it's part of that time of the year in Wellington that we call um it has a, its own special name its own special season so oh yeah is this, is this like the sirocco or the the wellington sirocco yeah it's a yeah. much better name i'll show you so yeah. or the february brawler. march is wellington summer february march mm -hmm. then from march of which year did you have one yeah <laughs> very good uh, then from march through to about june we have our sort of autumn and then from july through to december we have a season we call Shitsville. Yeah. Yeah. We didn't call it that when I lived there. We just call it glorious winter when you could look out from, you know, Thorndon and see the, see the Rimatuckers and the Tararuas covered in snow. And you just thought, God, it's good to be here. No, no. We're talking 150K winds, yeah. um, raining, overcast. And actually, you know, I was living here in the early 90s. It really was a different weather. Mm. And uh, climate change is a real thing, it turns out. <laughs> Which is. What, really, uh, do you think? Yeah, no. or is it just, or is it just the weather, Bernard? You know, I don't know. You know? No, I definitely think it's a climate change thing going on, which is. Um, is this our way of segueing to COP twenty six? We could do COP twenty six first. I think I think it's worth uh, doing because in years to come, they probably won't remember what you know all the ins and outs of uh, politics and monetary policy and fiscal policy mm. here in New Zealand. But COP twenty six should be a, an historic event in the history of the world because, in theory. We're all going to turn up there, magically work out we've got a problem we need to solve, uh, make the big changes and move on. Yeah, but, yeah. well, uh, I, I don't know, Bernard. I, I just I, I feel as though this one, uh, for obvious reasons, partly because it's chaired by Boris Johnson or, or, hit, or hosted by Boris Johnson, has been a festival of complete bollocks and uh, a festival of um, bullshit, really. Um, it may and will come up with some interesting pledges, um, but it is not going to have the meat that the COP25 in uh, Paris did. You know, that was extremely well organized. It was very well brokered. We didn't have COVID, so people like Xi Jinping came. But <clears throat> this is all, uh, this is just like a phenomenal global uh, guilt trip at the moment, as opposed to a genuine set of commitments. And I, I have a feeling New Zealand may well be dragged into this a little bit. I, th I have a feeling also that had Jacinda Ardern been there, which I don't, we all understand why she isn't there, but that there might have been a stronger place for New Zealand. Um, you know, there needs to be these smaller catalytic countries with somebody like a charismatic Jacinda Ardern who kind of gets it. And I'm not quite sure that James Shaw is going to be quite the one to do that. I mean, there have been agreements on deforestation that, you know, uh, Bolsonaro says he's going to stop chopping down the Amazon illegally by 2030. So he'll probably chop it down legally between now and then, which <laughs> will be fine. Um, and we've had a coal agreement today about about um, you know eliminating coal, except that it doesn't cover the United States, where we know coal is a is a really significant problem. It also doesn't cover Australia. Um, so or, or China I have a terrible, or India. Yeah, yeah. I have a well. Yes, we have absolutely no coal industries whatsoever. Although it was very interesting, I thought that it covered Indonesia, um, from which New Zealand derives quite a lot of its coal. Um, but it yeah, it is a very I don't know. One, burning about one and a half million tons of Indonesian coal every year at the moment. That's right. That's right. And that's only in Huntley. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I right. just I just think that this, I, uh, you know, there will be 
somebody will drag some alleged success out of this. It has got another uh, 12 days or so to run, and the hard work is being done there by the, the people, the Sherpas that we talked about last week, who normally um, go around the world you know, doing their diplomacy ahead of time, and it's all lined up. As I said to you before, I, I spent a lot of time in Paris in the last one, and they did an astounding job of, of global diplomacy and bringing everybody together. It was also a time when you didn't have, you know, I think Biden this week attacking uh, Xi Jinping for not coming is just puerile and and un, unhelpful in, this, in, in these circumstances. Um, and so I, I think there will be some... Uh, fragments taken from this. The methane agreement the other day was re is really interesting. And of course, the great thing about uh, containing met methane is that it A, can be contained. We do have the technology to do it. It isn't like carbon capture. Uh, and so much of it is the flaring off of unwanted gas or unless, you know, un un unshippable gas from um, wellheads and that kind of thing, and also leaks from, from pipelines. Which are which are everywhere, and of course the the you know this will require this agreement will require a global methane surveillance program to work out where those leaks are coming from. But uh, and I think that you know so that is a positive. I don't want to be completely negative about this, but I'm kind of with um, Greta Thunberg really that this is as she put it today, blah blah blah. <laughs> she is a fearsome character. Uh, you got you got to admire the sort of um, chutzpah of a you know eighteen year old oh. getting up and making such a freaking noise it's great to see and to to do it was under such pressure as well i mean you know um this is, i always point this out to my teenage kids you know if only you could be as good as greta <laughs> what you say that appreciate. to them no yeah they don't appreciate it no they wouldn't no. appreciate that let's not let's not go too far down that line you know look i i think she is an extraordinary symbol but i did i did just hope that there might be a little bit more than blah 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 from this and the, and there are some interesting things you know the methane one is interesting i don't think the deforestation thing is worth anything uh and i'm afraid that most of the um most of the uh country targets are going to be meaningless as well it's yeah. all this this pledge idea it's like a sort of global telethon yeah um and it's I think it was was it was at um, it was actually before Paris that the hundred billion to developing countries was um, uh, was proposed, and there's been something like twenty billion so far. It just isn't happening. Yeah, um, and when you look you know, at as soon New as they Zealand's, get home, they're pre sorry, Bernard, go ahead. Yeah, well, when you get look when you look at um, New Zealand's own contribution uh, with a fifty percent reduction pledged uh, by twenty thirty in climate emissions. It turned out, upon digging around about halfway through the press conference with James Shaw, who, by the way, hasn't even left New Zealand for the conference mm, yet. Mm. I mean, most of the actions happened. He's going to he's going to get there for the anticlimax. That's that's right. You'll look around and there'll be some empty plates, a few crumbs, you know, anything mm. left for me. Uh, mm. And um, he's going to he's going with there with this fifty percent pledge. But when we dug around, we found that actually two thirds of that pledge is not New Zealand reducing our emissions. It's paying someone yeah, in the yeah. we, we take our missions. Yeah. Yeah. To to essentially um, plant a bunch of trees. Now, mm. you know, that's not a bad thing. But um, essentially the government um, has advised you know, the arms of government have advised the um, cabinet that it will be too politically difficult to make the really big changes needed and would breach the government's uh, object key objective, which is reducing debt to mm. 20% of GDP. Mm -hmm. Which takes so, us back to your, to your. I mean, apart from the government's key objective, to the Public Finance Act. That's right. 
also just to show how performative these things are and how little credibility they have at the end of the day. Also this week, James Shaw signed New Zealand up to that global methane pledge, which on the face of it looks really substantial. Again, a 50% reduction in methane um, emissions. And we all looked at this and thought, gee, New Zealand's just signed up. Yeah. Sorry, no, 30% reduction. New Zealand's just signed up to a trebling of our commitment to reduce methane. Because unlike the Russians and the Americans, um, we don't have too many of these gas flary things. Although there are some in Taranaki, there's plenty there. Mm. But of course, our flare is... Um, well, and of course, I would argue that New Zealand needs to have more gas, not less gas, and continue gas exploration because it's essential to the transition. But then, you know... I don't have your socialist tendencies on this. No, 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 I agree with them, mm. you on that one. Um, this 100% renewable idea is um, extremism, really. And uh, it's crazy when we're burning up one and a half million tonnes of coal, mm. that should at the very least be the equivalent in gas. I think which ga course... Gas remains an absolutely critical transitional transitional um, yeah. commodity. Yeah. And, um, and based on what uh, I know of this. Yeah. I'm sure no, you're, you're experts on the panel. I, I, think, I think you're right. Um, the the other aspect here is that, of course, we've got all these methane emissions from our cows. Mm. And the theory is that we'll reduce our emissions by 10% from biogenic sources, so cows and sheep. But this uh, commitment was to treble our emissions yeah. reduction. Yeah. Thought, yeah. I, oh know, I imagine the people from Fonterra who are burning coal madly, <laughs> um, drying up, drying out um, yeah. milk powder also found that quite uh, interesting. Alarming, yeah. And, yeah. Then we, and then we asked James Shaw, do you really mean this? Are you really mm. committing New Zealand to treble our reductions? Which means him personally going out and um, sending a few herds of cows to the works, basically. Mm. Uh, oh, no, he said, no, no. The 30% reduction is a collective target. Not necessarily for us. It's yeah, for yeah. all of us. Yeah, no, this is why these <laughs> pledges are just so... Uh, sorry, Gianni. Yes, I do think. I personally do think nuclear is a is a vital yeah. transitional tool, not necessarily for New Zealand. Although, as I said to somebody the other day, when I was a child, there's a place called um, Jordan's Island in the Kaipara Harbour, which was earmarked for New Zealand's first nuclear power station. Wow. Uh, which shows you just how old I am. But uh, no, I don't. I don't. I don't think nuclear is going to go over in New Zealand, nor is it necessary in New Zealand. But we are going to have to have some transitions. I think nuclear yeah. is absolutely critical for large areas of the world. And you have seen France is, I think, 70% oh, yeah. dependent on nuclear. Exports a tremendous amount of electricity generated by nuclear power to the UK. Uh, and the UK has announced a, a program of small nuclear reactors, um, particularly of a type that is favoured by Bill Gates, um, who has invested very heavily in it. Bernard, you linked this, um, this week in your spin-off podcast you know which is nowhere near as good as this one and has no nowhere near as talented uh, uh fellow colleagues doing it but you linked rather extraordinarily and this is another good segue carbon um climate change with housing in new zealand your second favorite oh topic. yeah so i have the saying that the only things that really matter in new zealand are one house prices and two interest rates mm. and so if you look at every problem through the prism of house prices and interest rates you can look at climate change as well and so um, when you look at what, let's say, two and a half degrees of warming is going to do to New Zealand's coastlines and mm -hmm. floods and... I hope it's not going to do anything to Hearn Bay. I don't want, I don't want my mansion falling into the sea with its helicopter in Hearn Bay. Oh, yeah, no, I think you're high enough up. Mm -hmm. That's right. You can look down on mm -hmm. people as they mm -hmm. dissolve. Mm -hmm. <laughs> as, the, as the Briscoe's man falls into the sea with his yes, helicopter. That would right. be fine. Thank you. <laughs> uh, 
Um, and it turns out, uh, I spoke to uh, Belinda Story, who is a modeler who's done some deep research with the Deep South Science Project, which has found that um, with the likely increase in our sea levels and the likely increase in intensity and number of one in a hundred year storms. So instead of having one every hundred years, you have five every hundred years. Yeah. And uh, you also see with the higher sea levels, um, the, a bigger number of these storm surges, which are very damaging. So there's at least 10,000 properties which are at risk in the next 10 years mm -hmm. because of uh, rising sea levels and climate change. And that also is quite conservative because it doesn't include those um, uh, houses at risk on floodplains. Mm. And uh, when you look at that, you're looking at 100,000 houses. Now, this week, we got numbers from CoreLogic showing that the average New Zealand house price, so this is across New Zealand, the average New Zealand house price is about to hit $1 million. Excellent. So that means... For 100,000 houses, that's $100 million, billion dollars of risk. Now, that's why the um, Reserve Bank has just put out a big strategy document on how it's going to think about climate change, because when you've got your big four banks so exposed to one mm. particular type of asset being housing, and $100 billion is not a negligible number even for the big four banks. Another thing we have to think about, the big four banks that we have are exactly the same big four banks in Australia. Yeah. And of course, the risk is that Australia gets lumped with a massive amount of stranded carbon in the form mm -hmm. of oil and coal and gas that it can't use, not to, not to mention all of the much more extreme climate problems they're going to have there. An interesting piece of research pointed to today in the FT shows that uh, if you get the two and a half, three degrees by the end of the century, that now seems to be uh, locked in. Um, with the current trajectory of uh, emissions reductions, you would see um, large chunks of Australia with average temperatures throughout the year in the 40s. into the 30s and 40s, which yeah. is literally unlivable for humans. And uh, it means that uh, those big four banks are doubly exposed to climate change. It's something the Reserve Bank and others have to think about. And what this all means, of course, is that we now have we're not going to have an abate, a debate in New Zealand about what happens to these 100,000 houses. Do those people who, who, who own... Yeah, who supports them? Exactly. So who gets, who get, who takes the pain? Yeah. Is or, it those... do we, or do we, or do we just run all the um, double cab utes that are going to be uh, redundant and, and, you know, turn them into seawalls? <laughs> ah, what a great idea. Yeah. It's, it's been tried before. It's been tried before in New Zealand with, um, yeah. you know, yeah. cars and things. And usually the sea... Has, is a little smarter and goes right behind them and still eats away at the at the uh, cliff tops. Yeah, so we call them the Ford Ranger seawalls. That's right, and the that's right. and the Toyota Hilux seawalls <laughs> of New Zealand. Yeah, no, that's not a bad not a bad idea. And of course, the, the, the other problem is that all of these homeowners who are pretty well connected and able to um, do what they do normally. Uh, can get councils and governments to essentially bail them out by building lots of seawalls. Yep. And we've already seen... Well, I was thinking about this, Bernard, actually, just thinking about, you now to sort of wrap up the, the, the COP26 part of this, in a sense, and the environmental aspect of it, there is a provocative argument now to say, particularly after COP26, because there'll be another one, you know, in five years or four years, um, that it's going to be adaptation that is the emphasis now. We're going to, you know, we, this, we will have screwed up the last opportunity for mitigation at this COP26, it would appear to me, uh, and that it, then the emphasis for the next five years will shift dramatically towards adaptation. 
and that is not you know adaptation you know mitigation and adaptation are two halves of this of this problem but it is as we all know much much easier for developed countries to adapt and to pay for adap adaptation um and they're going to end you know, up having to put up not just sea walls to keep the sea out. They'll have to put up walls to keep the people out. Yeah, and, and we're going to have we're going to have to pay for air conditioning for those bloody Australians too in their forty six <laughs> degree heat in the middle of winter. You know, yeah. yeah but I it mean, is it is it's going to really shift. Uh, but uh, there are also really interesting opportunities in ad adaptation and mitigation as well from an investment point of view. But I just I I worry that we're you know this, the, that one point five is gone. Yep. And I don't want to be a I don't want to be a doomster. It's a Friday. You know, but I I suspect that 1.5 is dead and gone, and that it's going to be significantly higher than that, and that adaptation becomes the will become the emphasis that we'll all be writing about and reading about in the next five years, and um, it will all be, be become a fight about who pays and whether there is any moral hazard or should be any moral hazard for those people who go out of their way to buy coastal property knowing it's at risk, mm. but knowing that um, they can simply say, well, you know, I can't control the climate. I need help from a government to put up a seawall or to repair that broken bridge. Uh, nothing to do with me. Um, I'm, I expect to be well, bailed yeah, so, out but, by but the You mentioned the large. banks. What about the insurance, what about the insurance, uh, yes. the insurance industry as well? I mean, you've got, uh, well, what used to be the Earthquake and War Damages Commission in New Zealand. Um, you know, what's, what's, what's the whole issue there about, as you said, moral hazard? Like I, I would absolutely uh, love to buy an inexpensive um, clifftop place uh, at a batch, some you know, uh, on a piece of coastline in New Zealand. But I do see the downsides in that uh, quite soon. But what what are, what are the insurance implications? So um, what we're seeing all around the world is reinsurers, and remember, IAG mm -hmm. and State and Suncorp Metway, that all of them are essentially reinsuring their risk in New Zealand. So. The reinsurers are the ones who really make the decisions here. Mm. Um, and we've seen with some particular types of risk, uh, say, for example, storm risk in Florida, the reinsurers pulled out of that some time ago. Uh, wildfire risk in California, they've already pulled mm. out of that. So what that means is that insurers in these places can no longer get reinsurance. So that means either they just stop offering um, uh, insurance on those products, or they slice and dice the insurance. So we'll give you fire insurance, but we're not going to give you flood insurance. Or mm. we'll give you earthquake insurance, but we're not going to give you hail insurance or whatever mm. it is. But in New Zealand, because we have quite vanilla insurance products and insurance products that renew every year or two and mortgages that renew every year or two, what you have is a very, very fast shift, potential fast shift, i.e., um, normally, when you take out a financial contract, you set your conditions in place for it might be 10 years or 20 years. And in America, they have these 30-year mm -hmm. bonds, which people lock in their interest rates for. And But in New Zealand, every year or two, there are trigger points for renewing either the insurance or the mortgage. And so when a bank or insurer realizes they don't want to insure an entire neighborhood yeah, or an they entire just drop you city, up. they just drop you. And those people in Wellington who have seen what happened when all of the insurers got together pretty much and said, right, we're not going to insure Wellington and essentially subsidize Wellington with the rest of the country. We're going to treble the rates in Wellington. Mm -hmm. So for some parts of Wellington now, it's actually just uneconomic to live there because the insurance premiums are so high. Mm -hmm. And you can see that happening too in uh, some of these areas. So even if people you know, force 
the taxpayer and ratepayer at whole to put up the sea walls and to you know, repair the bridges, they may not be able to get insurance. And because once you don't have insurance, then you can't get a loan against it. Yeah. And the problem is, of course, that in New Zealand, house prices are so inflated by the ability to leverage any house where you can't borrow to buy it, the price collapses. Yeah. And um, no, it's a really interesting set of problems, Bernard. So, you know, John Key said this week that, you know, he didn't he didn't address quite the things that you're talking about. Actually, let, let this before we go to John Key. So are you suggesting that there will be effectively stranded assets all around New Zealand, which are uninsurable, unmortgageable homes? Yes. That you and I will sweep on, scoop up. <laughs> That's right, with our cash. Yeah. Yes, because uh, we won't be able to borrow to mm. buy them. And anybody uh, who's listening to us, um, since we're right. so totally qualified to give financial advice, yeah. That, that, not. That's right. We should give you the street names to go yeah. for. <laughs> Paraita Drive. I'm yeah, told yeah well, I was going to say Marine Parade. <laughs> Any Marine Parade in the whole of New Zealand is going to be worth it. Yeah. Exactly. Um, yes, there is a risk of that. But, of course, um, it really is about the reaction to it. So, for example, let's say Paraita Drive suddenly becomes uninsurable for whatever reason. Then you'll get a bunch of people get together and say, right, this is an unexpected crisis. I think we need a state-funded insurance scheme. Mm. And so what we've seen, for example, in Florida, is that the first thing that happened when the reinsurers pulled out because of uh, storm risk is that all of the local counties got together and went to the state government and said, you must um, you have need, be a, a lender of last resort. You yeah. need to uh, underwrite an insurer of last resort. Yeah. Yeah. So even if you can't get insurance, um, you can still use your moral hazard. And this is the really interesting thing, I think. At what point can you say, well, you knew about this and you shouldn't have bought to start with? And one of the most interesting trigger points will be when um, councils who have to think about this will start forcing people to put notes on limbs. So mm. the mm. land information memorandum. So whenever you buy a house, you, you look yep. at the so limb this, to make this, sure. This, this is you know prone to slips and is now uninsurable. Just Bernard, for the people who don't know, just explain what 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 moral hazard is, because I, I think it's a yeah. it, it isn't always clear from that from those two words, and it is such an interesting concept. And we saw it in the global financial crisis when the moral the concept of moral hazard was removed uh, to to a large extent from from the big banks and you know the the state and the, particularly in the United States accepted the moral hazard, took over the the consequence of moral hazard. So this is this idea that um, when you take a risk in a business or in whatever it is, that you should receive the rewards from that risk, but also um, you're the one who takes the loss if um, things turn out badly. So let's say, for example, you're a bank and you decide to be quite aggressive and lend to the riskiest prospects and you get a big bonus because you've got all those big loans away and then two, two years down the track, there's some sort of crisis, a mortgage crisis or a storm, whatever. And then suddenly those loans go bad. Your company goes broke because you're very um, aggressively uh, managing your balance sheet. You've got a lot of debt. So essentially, um, you then say, okay, well, fair's fair. I took the risk. Uh, yep. I'm going to get burnt and lose, and I'm going to go out of business, and yeah. that's but, tough. But the that's... reality is that you're completely, completely insured and protected by the government or by an insurer, so there's no hazard in the decision that you've taken. Exactly. So um, essentially, I'm being immoral 
and I'm transferring the hazard to everyone else. So the yeah. idea that you privatize the profits and socialize the loss. Which happens a great deal when you've got mm. the economically powerful driving politics. Yeah, and I think that's one of the sort of big lessons of the last um, 15 years or so is that everyone now knows that if there's a crisis and a bank is in trouble, they can go to a central bank or to a government and say, oh, look, we're so big, we can't afford to fail, we'll take down the economy with us. And so that's, this is one of the problems um, with concentration of ownership of any asset in any market in any country, is that you build a too big to fail problem. And yeah, which is, which is, uh, I see Sam is talking about that being capitalism. Capitalism implies risk. And the moment you remove the risk, it actually becomes socialized capitalism. Yeah, which is great uh, if you're on the right side of it mm -hmm. and you can collect all the profits. Or, but, yeah. but of course, um, capitalists uh, in this system uh, love collecting all the profits and don't want to share it with the people at large. But whenever there's trouble, uh, more than happy to ask everyone else to help pay for it. Mm. And, and this is the, the lesson from the global financial crisis. And I think from COVID is that those people able to um, put their case across to those in charge, central banks and governments, were able to get bailed out and have their assets bought off them and their assets inflated. And those who don't have assets, who essentially bore the cost as taxpayers and ratepayers at large. Which deeply, deeply increases the cynicism about politics and who's in charge. Exactly. Speaking of which, speaking of cynicism, so John Key today talking about, or yesterday oh, yes. talking about housing through the, um, would you would you explain what that really means? I mean, he was, he was saying that heavily indebted, heavily indebted people are, um, you know, are, are extremely vulnerable and therefore um, housing prices will now start to stabilise at a certain level. That also implies quite a lot of pain for some of those heavily indebted people, I would have thought. Yeah. What did you um, make of that? Yeah, no, I mean, he's, he makes an interesting point um, about how um, the higher interest rates, lower migration, and also the increased housing supply are likely to put a cap on house prices here, that he thinks the boom has gone as far as it can go. But he also makes the point that... Uh, house prices are unlikely to collapse because if they did, he says, there would be a large number of people who'd be in what we call negative equity. So mm. that's where your mortgage is worth more than the house. But the thing that um, John Key, I don't think, has realised, and a lot of people... In now, Bernard, that's a big statement because he's, you know, he's, he's done quite well for himself. Yeah, he's also the chair of the ANZ Bank, so you'd hope he's so do, a good, yeah, look, do, do, good yeah. look at the book. I think we need to get him on as a guest for you to say, now, look here, John, you haven't, the thing you haven't understood. Yeah, exactly, is that um, New Zealanders have an awful lot of equity in their houses. Mm. So we have about $350 billion worth of mortgages, which sounds like an awful lot. But we have a housing market that's worth 1.7 trillion. So what that means is that effectively the country has a loan-to-value ratio of about 20-25%. And that means that let's say house prices were to collapse 40%. Now, if I said that out loud, out loud, out loud in public, if I said, hey, let's engineer a 40% fall in house prices, mm. everyone would look at each other and go, he's mad. That cannot be coped with, yeah. our, our economy would collapse. And that's what Key is sort of suggesting. Except the, that, that the people who are going to get hurt are the people who are overstretched, are the people on lower incomes, and the people who have you know, higher debts, and particularly first-home first, first home buyers. Yes, particularly the ones who are in most recently. But mm. actually, because the Reserve Bank has restricted the amount of high, uh, highly leveraged lending in the last 10 years or so, 
that, that means that there aren't that many people who've, who are borrowed, who are currently borrowing at 80, 90, 100%. In fact, most of the people who are borrowing now are borrowing at 50 or 60% at best. Wow. And actually- Is that rich parents? There's parents that. With, yeah. There's that. Not rich but, parents, sorry. Forgive yeah, me, yeah. That's no, the, usually good. it's people who borrowed with 80% two years ago and now have- and now have effectively a loan worth only 40 or 50% mm. because mm. house prices have risen. Mm. So the, the great irony here is that key is um, tapping into a basic belief of New Zealanders that we couldn't handle a housing price crash. When, when you look at the numbers, we could easily afford it because our banks are more capitalized than they ever have been. Our homeowners have enormous amounts of equity. And so yeah, but you don't, it's, it is that it is a little bit like, you know, you and I've uh, both been through a couple of three or four um, stock market crashes, and you tend to associate your wealth with the prop with the with the with the highest point at which it was um, valued, whether it's equities or your house. And so, any diminution of that, you do not think, um, "Gosh, I can still afford that house." And actually, now, <laughs> you know, my neighbors can move new new neighbors can move into my now extremely good value neighborhood. You think, "Oh my God, my wealth has shrunk by half a million dollars." If it's a you know significant fall or a million dollars yeah and you're right it's a psychological effect but actually when you look at the finance of it people can still afford the mortgage because in the last four or five years people have not been allowed to borrow unless they could handle a six percent mortgage rate mm. so that all of the banks use what they call it so there's a bit of a cushion rate. there's a bit of a cushion here absolutely and so my um uh, challenge to John Key, the chair of the Reserve, the chair of ANZ Bank and former Prime Minister, is before you say we have a vulnerable housing market that can't handle lower prices, have a look at how much equity they've got and how, have a look at um, uh, what their actual commitments in terms of paying the mortgage is at the moment. Because actually, when you look at the numbers, the uh, mortgage cost of New Zealand's homeowners is actually only 6%, single digit, 6% of disposable income at the moment. Mm. Okay, so, Bernard. So we've got, we've got, you know, virtually zero inflation at the moment. Interest rates yep. at point, point 0.5, is it point 0.5? Uh, then you've got the bogey of inflation. Now, you've been, you've been an inflationary skeptic. Everybody else is now moving the other way. Well, except for the Fed and the Bank of England, who last, last night, the Bank of England shocked everyone by not increasing mm. interest rates. Everyone thought, oh, they're bound to do it. Inflation's gone nuts. They'll have to put up interest rates. The Bank of England didn't. And the Fed um, yesterday morning essentially said, yeah, we'll stop printing money slowly over the next seven or eight months. And we'll probably stop by the middle of next year. But it's no sure thing that we're going to put up interest rates. And Jerome Powell came out and said, we're going to be patient before we put up interest rates. Mm -hmm. And we still think that this inflation surge we're having is transitory. And by the end of next year, it will have washed through the system. So um, I'm still in the inflation skeptic camps, but you're right. There's hardly anyone else, any, anyone else in here. Everyone's, everyone believes that um, inflation is here and it needs to be stopped. Well, it's interesting, on. you know, you have got Biden talking, talking about higher oil prices, that OPEC isn't helping, um, you know, you're going into the US, US winter, we could see quite a nasty blip in kind of fundamental inflation. And then, of course, we have all these supply chain difficulties coming out of, coming out of COVID. I, I also wonder in New Zealand, Bernard, whether over the next few months we're going to see tremendous, wage, significant wage, wage pressure, upward wage pressure. And I'm not, I don't see where productivity is going to come from in New Zealand as such, other than agriculture. 
you know, yeah, that's, that's an interesting one. And you're right, just about everyone is saying, look how hot our housing market is. This week, for example, we got numbers showing that unemployment had a record low of mm. 3.4%. It's extraordinary, really. You know, there's so many stressed businesses out there. We're in the biggest economic and social crisis that we've had in, since the Second World War, pretty much. And still, 3.4% unemployment. It's extraordinary. In fact, um, there was... Uh, more than 50,000 new jobs created uh, for a quarter where for at least a third of it, we were all locked down. Yeah. Well, so, and so some of us, Bernard, are still locked down. So let's just yes. switch for a minute to the, to the politics of this. Ah, yeah. And it has been very interesting. Mm. I mean, I, I'm, I, I'm actually, sorry, there is a, there is a, there always is, but there is a, a rather extraordinary herd mentality in New Zealand that seems to me particularly driven by talkback radio or by uh, possibly by radio that suddenly moves Jacinda Ardern from being super competent to being super incompetent, uh, and the government itself from being quite competent in this to being incompetent. It's been a very difficult week politically for them. Uh, without sort of jumping on that particular bandwagon, they haven't appeared tremendously uh, practical or to have had joined up thinking. I mean, the whole um, uh, Hipkins, um, Grant Robertson thing about borders in Auckland, which which Jacinda Ardern really triggered with a kind of bit of kite flying. There's something going on, isn't there, with the government messaging at the moment that it just isn't as coherent as it was. Yeah. So I've spent a bit of time in and around Parliament in the last few days just trying to um, uh, sniff the breeze of how people are feeling in and around the beehive. And I get the sense that there's a lot of tired people. Mm. There's a lot of people who, you know... Well, there's only six people in this government, too. <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah. So you've got uh, Jacinda Ardern, Grant Robertson, Chris Hipkins, then you go Andrew Little, Megan Woods, Michael Wood, and Anaya Mahuta. And where's and Chris Farfoy in that? Uh, he's not there anymore. Uh-huh. No. Okay, thank you. Uh, Interesting. <laughs> so we can, we can do a separate session on him at some point. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So those key people, type five, whatever you want to call it, um, they're normally very cohesive. So essentially, mm. before any announcement, they go, they've had the, the five-way phone call or the text message group chat saying, we'll do this and do this, and you'll say that, yep. and yeah, I know what you're going to say. We're, we're all on board here. Let's go and do it. We're starting to see that fracture a bit. So you're starting to hear different messages at different times from people. Yep. I, think I thought Willie Jackson's thing intervention this week with another excellent interview by Joe Moyer from Newsroom was really interesting, where he said, yeah, we really did screw up. Maori vaccination, for example, you know, yeah. I, I actually, I personally, I find that kind of admission deeply refreshing mm. yeah. and I don't hold it against them, but no. And the Maori um, caucus are under an enormous amount of pressure mm. from their own communities because yes, um, the government did throw them under the bus back in February, March, when they decided to not prioritize Maori vaccinations. Now it's come back to hurt them now, of course, because uh, um, Maori vaccination rates, particularly in the regions are really low and just this week, for example, we got this extraordinary situation where the High Court mm. had to tell the Ministry of Health to release the data to Fana Ora to find people who are unvaccinated. Yeah, yeah. I mean, just, we, we kind of know why they had to do that in a sense, because it was all about data protection and you need, they needed a judgment to, to you know, over, overturn their normal habits about data protection. But yeah, I, it, it is a very interesting, it is a very interesting set of problems. So what do you think, what's your antenna your beehive antenna your your little bee antennas telling you yep. about the outlook now because we you know we've also got this increasing uh problem with miq 
you've got, uh, uh, I, I think, is it 1,700 people? I forget, 100, uh, uh, forgive me, I forget the name, number of the number of people who are um, uh, self-isolating at home in Auckland. Yep. Um, so you've got, you know, double back, double vaxxed people in MIQ who, who don't have COVID, and yet you've got people self-isolating who do have COVID. It's a very, you know, there's a, some of the, some of the um, social equation here is starting to fray. That's, that's right. And people are starting to think, this is not fair. I've taken all this pain. I've got the double jab and I'm being held hostage by these people who either can't get their act together or often la-la land reading mm. too much Facebook. So this is um, a real problem for the government. It's essentially a frame of the social license or the mm. social contract yeah. between the governed and the governing. And I thought this week was the most ragged that, I'd seen, that I've seen the type five, so to speak, in the four in the four or so years they've been in government mm. i think they are all exhausted i think it's been two years of constant crisis and being coming up with these massive decisions every couple of weeks where they have to you know make a big call yeah and um a lot of the weight of that decision making goes on those top two or three yeah, it was people. pretty amusing seeing david seymour today talk about jacinda ardern being able to um uh, being able to govern in the good times, but not the bad. If you think of, if you think of, you know, earthquakes, fires, you know, the the last locust attack, you know, on Gisborne, um, you know, she's she's she hasn't exactly had a cruisy easy period as prime minister. No, no, no. and uh, that's the thing. Um, you can't really fault her for um, the amount of just sheer work and pressure that um, she's dealt with. Um, and I think, you know, we also got to go out a little bit, go a little bit helicopter view and look down and see New Zealand still has only 29 deaths. Yeah. A well, there's a very interesting aspect. because So um, there was some very good stuff around today. And I'm, I'm going to sort of slightly thank you very much, Juliet, for reminding me how many people are there. I Cheers. thought it was 1,700. No, I couldn't remember. It was 17 or 700. I apologize. This um, is the wisdom of the crowds. Yeah. Thank you very much. Um, excellent book by James Sirowicki from The New Yorker. Um, <laughs> The um, uh, there was a very good piece today about the, the genuine situation in Israel, as opposed to the situation in Israel as described by that rather dodgy American activist who uh, pretended to be a journalist when Jacinda oh, yeah. Ardern was in Northland. And I I actually think that you know politicians do need to work out how to deal with um, hecklers and activists and so on. But part of his contention was that. Um, the Israel, Israel situation shows that vaccines don't work because a lot of people are being admis, admitted to a hospital uh, fully vaccinated. But that is what you get when you have a fully vaccinated population. And also the other thing about Israel, as we know, is that they had a terrible failure in lockdown, opened up all of the country's data to Pfizer in order to get you know, the first two. And now they're undertaking a very effective um, third, as we're calling it sometimes, booster shot. Um, so it you know it, it isn't the case that uh, the high number of um, vaccinated people in hospital in Israel indicates a failure of the vaccines. It just indicates that the percentage of the population that is vaccinated is extremely high. Yeah, and um, we are going to see you know outbreaks uh, escalate in the next three or four weeks. The theory is with the current modeling, we get up to a high of uh, two hundred cases. We're at one hundred and sixty three today. And I asked, um, uh, Dr. Carolyn McKelney uh, this afternoon, mm. where the top limit was, how many hospitalizations can we handle? We've currently got 67 in hospital, only three of whom are in, in, uh, in uh, intensive care, which is fantastic mm. because 
um, we seem to have found ways to, to uh, treat people with drugs and um, uh, steroids and uh, oxygenation so that they, we don't get to that horrible situation when you're in ICU on a ventilator and mm. you can be there for weeks and weeks. And yeah, and it's very interesting. I mean, I'm going to do that segue to our world issue there. I mean, you've still got 42,000 cases a day in the UK. Uh, I noticed Germany this week has got a real problem with getting 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 a, a high enough vaccination rate to get to start to get some herd immunity mm. going. They're talking uh, about going back to restrictions for Christmas there. Yeah, and and the same in Denmark. So which which lifted all restrictions recently. So I think it is still going to be a very difficult winter in Europe. I don't mean to sound dystopian about it, but it's going to be a very difficult winter elsewhere. Um, psychologically, though, it is interesting in the UK, for example, that people people or the, the the bulk of the population have kind of moved on. They're not, not so much comfortable, but it just doesn't move the dial to have 42,000 people a day having um, being tested positive for COVID. Yeah, it, um, we're in a, a weird position. There's actually a question from Alex on the, um, on the thread there, asking the question about qualities, quality adjusted life years. And whether or not our government in the... Ah, didn't um, you ask a question of Jacinda about this some months ago, Bernard? I whether did, actually. A... Yeah. So this goes back, actually, to the first sets of lockdowns when a lot of people were asking, you know, yes, it's good that we don't have people in hospital and we don't have deaths, but what about the real costs, not just economic costs, but human social costs of mm. people mm. who, you know, miss out on... Um, uh, that human contact that we all that we're social animals we really need it and, I've, and I'm I know that uh, uh, a lot of the people I'm in contact with in Auckland are just exhausted with not being able to get on with their lives mm -hmm. and have the normal social events and the and all the other stuff um, that goes with it and so we're hearing some you know, we're seeing some surveys showing increased uh, problems with mental health um, uh, actually the the suicide numbers last year were lower than they normally are, but there are some yes. there are some discussions about um, whether the ongoing lockdowns globally, as well as here, you know, essentially damage permanently a good chunk of mental health, which you have to take into account when you're trying to make these decisions. The unfortunate thing is that um, it's certainly it's certainly damaging mine, Bernard. Yes. Yeah, I mean, you know, you're, there's a lots of... Um, Not just because I have to talk to you twice a week or several times a week. <laughs> no, I mean, it's a it's a real issue. And Alex is, is right to say we should be looking at that. The problem is, and I discovered this when I asked the question, hang on a minute, if you're doing a proper cost-benefit analysis of about all these decisions about locking people down and shutting your economy, uh, why aren't you using the, the sort of quality structure for decision making that they do mm, in mm. health economics and in the likes of pharmac uh, well it's time to ask that question again isn't it Bernard? i mean you asked that nearly six months ago or even a mm -hmm. bit longer and there was deep reluctance on the part of the prime minister or ashley bloomfield to answer you on that but they must there must have been some very interesting health economics work done on that since then You'd hope so, and we certainly haven't seen it. And from what I hear, and when I ask people inside Treasury and MB and the Ministry of Health, a lot of them are exhausted too. So there's sort mm. of um, heavy analysis that you'd expect. It's just not being done. There is a real seat of the pants thing going on. And a lot of these decisions just get escalated very quickly up to ministerial level, um, to the type five. And essentially it often lands on the head of the prime minister in a cabinet mm. discussion 
I have to and make a line call it. and I have to make it now and I don't have all the, the heavy quality analysis and I'm going to make the call, which, see, and you can see why the government has taken this approach because last year when we took the approach to uh, prioritise health first and it turned out it was actually good for the economy um, and essentially all the plan B stuff from last year was um, discredited and so you can see why they've doubled down on it again this time. But the problem is, of course, with Delta, it's so much harder to keep it out. And they've lost the battle, obviously, in Auckland. And it's now at the point where um, the government now faces on November the 29th, the most almighty, uh, and I think um, government ending or government making decision about whether to open up Auckland internally for retail and hospitality properly, and also whether to open the border properly. And I'm not talking... 10-hour queues with people showing vaccinations to no, to... no, I think you're right. And I suspect that's where your those hospital numbers are going to be absolutely critical. Yeah. And that's... that if they feel they can cope, it'll happen. Yeah. So I'm trying I was trying to get to the guts of that today in the press conference asking, so what is the limit for hospitalizations? We know that 67 yeah. is the number uh, currently in the Auckland hospitals. And I think the Auckland hospitals will bear a lot of the load. Because I think we, we are learning now that the regional hospitals, the, the Gisbons, the New Plymouths, the Whangarei's are in awful state. And what's going to happen is that a lot of the load is going to be transferred into the centre to Auckland, which of course yep. is already close to full. So what I think is there is a number, and I asked it, and they looked at each other, um, Robertson and McKellen, looked at each other today and went, right, um, we know the number at the top of our heads, but we don't really want to give it out. So we say we it's don't. It's a little bit like that ultimate vaccination number that they were so reluctant of, but yeah. reluctant to give. But I suspect that that will be the cap, right? That the, the cap is not going to be moving out of Auckland. The cap is going to be what the hospital situation is. Exactly. So you look for the, the variable in the three-dimensional chess game. What is the thing that holds back everyone and is the determinant of which way you go? And I think, I think you're right. It will depend on, over the next two or three weeks, the number of cases, how many go to, into, into hospital, because it looks like they've done a really good job of stopping them then going into ICU. So mm -hmm. um, my gut feel, and looking at some of the coverage previously, is that once you get to hospitalizations in Auckland of over 100, close to 150, then we're in real trouble. And I th that's the metric that I'm so we're going to, to have watch. to. So, so if I, I suspect that there will be a trade off between now and the 29th, um, which is that um, uh, we will be allowed freedom, but yep. there will be a deep expectation for us to wear masks and for us to really adhere to social distancing and so on. And there'll be one of those kind of social pressure nudge campaigns back, backed up by that. Yeah. I, I, but the, the other option, which I um, got out of the government today, is that instead of cordoning off Auckland and stopping people from leaving Auckland, they could cordon off the East Coast and parts of Northland so that essentially you stop people going in as opposed to stop Aucklanders coming out. And the log logistics of that are much easier. A, you have a smaller number of people all converging on one road at Fokatane to get to the East Coast or one road north of Whangarei to get up to the top of the, north, the Northland. And so 
they're essentially managing demand as opposed yeah, to yeah. So to stop Debbie supply. Harkness just made that point on the on the chat, and that's pretty much what we're talking about. So should we talk a little bit about what's happening overseas at all, Bernard? Oh, based yes. on my world bulletin, because we yes, yes, you know, we've done we've done the housing and we've done New Zealand COVID. Oh, yes, so yes. a couple of stories that I that I highlighted in the in the world bulletin this week was one is Ethiopia. Uh, which is a country that we only really look at when it has a famine. There is a famine coming, but there's also effectively a civil war going on there. And it is a, it is an absolutely fascinating story because you have the Nobel Prize winning, Nobel Peace Prize oh, winning yeah. prime minister has essentially run on an unbelievably dangerous or become an unbelievably dangerous kind of ethnic warrior against the Tigrayans. Uh, you know, it's which, like a which, kiss of death when you get the Nobel Peace Prize. Soon that's right. After, that's you right. Get accused of war crimes. That's right. And so you had you now have the TPLF, the Tigrayan People's Liberation Front forces, having more or less routed the official Ethiopian uh, army and heading down towards Addis Ababa. And I, you know, it is going to be a disaster. It's an incredibly strategic area. So you know, stand by for famine human rights violations and also some pretty strategic problems on the in the Horn of Africa. And of course, that's the channel point for a lot of the um, shipping that goes mm -hmm. through that area and the oil. And um, again, one of I think one of the symptoms of the pressures we'll get with climate change is that that um, sub-Saharan yeah. mid mid area is where this, the pressure is going to be on enormously to for people to move or com competition for resources, which just leads to social chaos. Absolutely, it is. And uh, China. So yes. very, we've, we've talked quite a lot about hypersonic missiles. Um, the Pentagon this week said that they think that China is going to have, uh, I think it was by 2030, um, uh, 1,000 nuclear warheads, uh, which is, of course, um, a quarter of what both the United <laughs> States and Russia have. But China is outside uh, most of the um, uh, nuclear limitation agreements, uh, the treaties and so on. And as we've discussed before, they've built several hundred new silos uh, um, in Xinjiang and across the northern deserts of, of, of China. And this is really, you know, they're redrawing the strategic map of the world. And one of the interesting uh, pieces that, that, um, that, that you and I have discussed is uh, an, an analysis that suggests that AUKUS, this um, comedic uh, and potentially disastrous uh, submarine project with the United States, the UK and Australia, is causing the causing the Soviet Russia? I just about said the Soviet Union. Then Russia and China to get ever closer together in terms of military technology and cooperation. And it would appear, for example, that China is working very closely with Russia on its early warning system for attacks from the United States. Right. And so the whole, you know, strategic balance is up for grabs at the moment and and being overturned. Uh, regardless of what we sometimes say about about Taiwan, this is this is a bigger issue than than just that. Although it is obviously clear that um, Taiwan is a huge target for Xi Jinping personally, for all yeah. sorts of reasons. Yeah, and the Chinese are very aware of the nuclear issue. Um, a diplomat in New Zealand gave a speech on I think Tuesday night here, in which he warned New Zealand that the Chinese believe Australia is not just interested in nuclear powered mm. submarines. That Australia will eventually, inevitably, get nuclear armed submarines. Australia has no shortage of uranium, apart from anything else. Yeah, but it's of course it has legislation that actually prevents it having a domestic, uh, a, a domestic power 
industry and and you know domestic weapons so that would that would have to change it was one of the i mean we all love to kick um scott morrison because he's so incredibly kickable um it, it's worth looking up if anybody will, I'll, I'll find it actually and put it put it on this link but malcolm turnbull this week absolute in glasgow absolutely shat on um scott morrison in the most cogent and effective way noting that he was a liar noting that um he had junked the uh, French submarines in the most brutal way and, you know, that he was essentially a friendless uh, corrupter of Australia's entire reputation. Which, um, there's some history, obviously, between the two of them. Oh, no, really? <laughs> sw- swapped the leadership of the Liberal Party yeah, and the Prime yeah. Ministership a couple of times. But um, the one of, uh, one of the most interesting pieces of video I thought I've seen in the last week was that extraordinary little exchange between an Australian reporter and Manuel Macron. Emmanuel Macron, yeah. In which the reporter said, uh, how do you, how do, do you really think that Scott Morrison lied to the French people? And Emmanuel, in perfect French, first perfect English, comes out and says, I don't think, I know. Yep. <laughs> it was just beautiful. Yeah, no, it is. I've just put up there the, um, the, the, the Turnbull thing. I mean, it is, Australian politics is a very interesting place at the moment where you've got Kevin Rudd, uh, you know, a, China, a noted China expert, phenomenal egotist, um, being very effective about China. You, you know, um, who who who, know, who even knows the name of the current current Labour leader? I was just kind of about to call him Albacore, but it's it's not or Abalone. Um, you know, he he has made no impression whatsoever, and yet and you've got this fantastic internecine war going on there in both parties mm, with, with two politics. former prime ministers. It's you know. absolutely the best. Australian politics, as a spectator sport, it is it, you cannot beat it. And that was one of the most uh, extraordinary, fun things I ever did as a reporter was be in the press gallery in Canberra for a couple of years, um, following around Paul Keating, uh, the most um, mm. extraordinary, brilliant, scary, um, heroic. That's exactly what he says dastardly. about himself: extraordinary and brilliant. That's right. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> Politician around that was uh, that was the, quite a, the, the Dracula of Australian of Australian the politics. Tra- yeah, <laughs> who collects French clocks and has the yes. most beautiful. That's suits. right. Yeah, um, and and just to finish off, uh, Peter, you do have a skateboarding dog. Oh, oh, we uh, yeah. Well, so this it was a couple really. Two two quick skateboarding dogs, and then we'll yes. open up for questions, shall we? Yeah. Do the do, so. One is this extraordinary story about the um, amount of biomass that has been lost from the killing of the the nineteenth century um, near extinction of baleen whales, particularly the blue oh, whales. Right. And what is what what's been shown? There's a very good piece on this in the Economist this week. Uh, but it feeds into the whole uh, adaptation to climate change thing, not to do another absolutely brilliant pivot. Um, the poo from the previous populations of baleen whales that existed before they were virtually wiped out in the 19th century and early 20th century um, created an iron, uh, an ample quantity of iron in the Southern Ocean in particular, which generated uh, and supported the development of krill. And of course, so krill popular, you know, despite the whales eating an awful lot of krill, because they weren't pooing out the um, iron, iron in, from eating the krill, the krill populations have shrunk along oh, with the whale populations. Wow. And so scientists are now suggesting that we need to do um, what's called for, for, for climate control geoengineering to seed iron back into the southern oceans, which is quite an arid place 
in order to promote the development of krill, which will then promote the development of whales, which might, because the krill, of course, uh, are, are themselves a carbon store, assist with global warming. So it is kind of a, it's a very Gaia-ish kind of, yeah, yeah. you know, if we do this, we do that. And then the other one is that there's a new, the other skateboarding dog store, which is definitely not really a skateboarding dog story, but is uh, a new Netflix series that's coming shortly about what certainly for me, and it would appear it's been billed as a previously unknown and more or less hidden, uh, historically hidden uh, prison camp in the United States, uh, which was to uh, house um, Nazi prisoners, including Werner von Braun, the inventor or the creator of the Apollo oh, program, no. um, which was staffed and guarded by particularly Jewish guards. So you had this kind of Quentin Tarantino type oh, cool. If anybody's seen Inglorious Bastards, you'll know what I'm talking about. A Quentin Tarantino type prison camp in the United States where uh, Nazi uh, suspects were being guarded by Jewish guys. And that is being turned into a, a Netflix drama, which looks oh, rather interesting to me. But the, yeah. the historical fact of it is is quite fascinating and worth a look. Yeah. So should we ask, should we go to questions, which is essentially yes. another ask Bernard anything. And what they really want is why doesn't he have Peter Bale on more? <laughs> Exactly. Well, you're welcome to jump into the comments on the Ask Me Anything. Mm. Uh, it was actually a bit of an experiment today. I just thought, because I've had quite a few bits and pieces of feedback from people saying, you know, I, I'm busy at that time. I can't do the four o'clock thing. Um, I, can I just ask you a question or throw it in there? It turned out it was really successful. So please do jump in. Um, I want to take another hour of your time for free. <laughs> um, but we've got some questions oh, sorry, here. Sorry, I'll, I'll put them in. Yeah, Dara, I'll answer that now. Yeah, so Frankie has asked, uh, concerned about a Melbourne-style uprising and whether Jacinda is going to survive it. Um, I don't see a um, Melbourne uprising in the same way, because what happened there was the, the state government uh, mandated for construction, mandated vaccinations for construction. And so you had um, a union which was able to organize a group of people to essentially march unmasked through the town. And uh, I think also Melbourne had been in lockdown, if it's believable, for much longer than Auckland and was just absolutely exhausted. I've got a brother who was telling, he told me a couple of days before that happened that it was a tinderbox waiting to go off. And I'm not in Auckland, so maybe that tinderbox is about to go off. Mm -hmm. But I, I actually think if someone wanted to organise it, let's say it was a Mike Hosking, I'm not suggesting he does it, but someone like or that, a Judith Collins, perhaps. I see. Well, I see she's yeah. she's going. She says she's going on the next farmers protest. Yeah, alleged think, farmers protest. Yeah, I think that would be a mistake. But if someone was to say, "I'm going to stand at the top of Queen Street with a mask on, socially distanced, and I want 50,000 people to walk down Queen Street with me to say, open up our city, they might be surprised there would be 50,000 people mm. turn up. And if that happened, uh, the, the government would have no choice but to open up the city. And we will see, I think, a, a few more of these um, uh, uh, Destiny Church, um, you know, unmasked rabble, mm. couple of thousand in, uh, in the domain, but the sort of mass uprising, real sort of danger in the air, large numbers campaigning for a specific thing. I haven't seen it yet, but give it a couple of weeks. And if by November 29, we're still in a position where essentially Auckland is locked down, there's no hope for summer. 
Um, the government's gone really hard to say we can't open up because um, there's still 2,000 people in Gisborne who haven't been vaccinated. Then I think we're in deep trouble. I don't think the government will let it get to that point. The question about whether the Prime Minister will survive this, um, I think there's a non-negligible chance that she engineers uh, an exit next year and a transition to Grant Robertson. Uh, and I don't think anyone would begrudge her that after four or five years of intensity. Um, mm -hmm. But it's amazing when you're in power how hard it is to give it up. So I yes, think it's a, it's a relatively low risk, but a real, a real risk. Um, but it would be at her choosing in time. And you've got to remember, too, that the opposition is incredibly weak. And if the government was to get through the summer without um, with relative freedoms and with um, small outbreaks and get to 90-something percent double-vaxxed, that would be a massive achievement and mm. it would guarantee re-election come 2023. Bernard, are you looking at the Q&As? Because I see Jonathan, yes. our, our new home-owning best friend from our oh, earliest podcast, is, is already, worried about his, class, already worried about his interest rates. Why are New Zealand interest rates so high yeah. compared with global standards? Quick answer, Bernard, not the big long one that you normally give to this question. Because our central bank runs monetary policy too tight. And uh, because our, uh, in theory, our savings aren't high enough, but I don't buy that. And actually, I just think that we've gotten monetary policy too wrong for too long and been too tight. And that's part of the reason why interest rates are that little bit higher. And uh, I think in time that will... In historic terms, again. of course, they're extremely low. Yes, relative to um, relative to history. interest rate history, but not relative to to current yeah. levels of inflation. You're right. Yeah, yeah, and and certainly there are some exceptionally low interest rates elsewhere. So the Germans, in some cases, are still looking at negative yields, but that's because they're all old, and, and want to put their money into a bond and a bank account and won't put it anywhere else. We're still relatively young and growing quite fast, which still means that um, you're likely to have. Um, slightly higher interest rates. But and that's the guts of it. Economist attendee has a similar one, which is, do you think rising interest rates will slow the construction of houses? Answer, no, really. Uh, right. Well, I think it might slow the growth of it. So um, I think one of the key things around the, the uh, construction of houses, the supply, the supply shock talk, is how much the banks lend to property developers. And I had a look at the numbers at the Reserve Bank uh, a couple of days ago. Despite record high building consents, so we now have got a, a really decently high building consent rate oh. uh, relative to our... Bernard, have we lost you there? I'm still here. No, there I'm still are. here. There you go. Good. Right, I'm back. Um, uh, 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 New Zealand uh, still has, as now has a really high building consent rate. But the thing is, it's not because the banks have been lending money to property developers or the people buying off the plan. Um, it's come from other places. And so one of the real, really important things around what will slow construction or not is whether the banks choose to lend much to property developers. And at the moment, they're not. In fact, they've reduced their lending to property developers. So if anything's going to slow things down, it's going to be A, um, uh, rising interest rates a bit, B, whether the banks clamp down even more on property develop, development lending and see whether councils have a proper revolt against the townhouse nation mm -hmm. bipartisan deal last week. And we saw some hints of it 
in the Auckland Council um, this week when Christine Fletcher, the um, citizen and ratespayer uh, councillor, former National Party um, minister, came out and described the um, new rules saying three townhouses, three storeys on any section as a, quote, gang rape of uh, Auckland's... Oh. So uh, she, wasn't, she wasn't being overly, overly florid then? No, no, and um, she, she, it, it will cost um, her, I think, because uh, it was an outrageous thing to say. But apart from, apart from that, it shows the depth of... Uh, opposition within councils, not just councillors and so politicians, but also the bureaucrats inside councils who just do not want new houses built. Because every mm. time you build a new house, you have to build more infrastructure and put up rates. And they know that the boss, the mayor or the councillors, will eventually say no, because we don't want the high rates. Essentially, it's all back to this Public Finance Act restriction on using balance sheets and debt to smooth infrastructure costs out over different generations. It's a um, dumb inheritance from 1989, which needs to be reformed. But that's you've probably right. heard that before. That's another topic. Yes. Um, All right. Any other questions that we should we should answer, uh, or so you should answer, since yeah. you've done most of them? Yes. Um, so there's that. Uh, do you think Bernard for PM? Yeah. No. Thank yeah, no, you. No. <laughs> Unelectable and unemployable, I'm afraid. But I am able to do work for um, a fantastic group of subscribers who support me, and I really appreciate yeah. it. Julian, I haven't talked to my brother for a couple of weeks, actually, because it's been a, quite a sensitive topic. So I'm going to talk to one of them shortly, I think, to yeah make sure that um, things are going OK. Thank you. Good. Thanks for your concern. <laughs> it's a small country, isn't it? Mm. Hey, we are past the five o'clock um, mark. I'd just like to say thank you very much again for another cracking hoon. Um, Peter, fantastic to have you on again. And uh, hopefully- Yeah, it's very good. To, I think we need to do your, you know, people have, people have noticed your Terminator eyes and also that Lynn had to remove various uh, hanging items from the from the from from your bedroom. Yeah. I've got to get my Zoom hygiene much better. Yeah, exactly, yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right, thank you cool. very much, Bernard. And thank you very much, all those people. Cheers, thanks.